Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back in late July, we're going to resume the weekly A Song of Ice and Fire podcast with A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm putting out weekly episodes with a rotating series of guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as putting out text and audio posts of my own like this one. Every week, I've been going back through J.R.R. Tolkien's classic The Lord of the Rings for patrons. Since this week we're not going to have a regular episode, I thought I'd put out the first couple chapters for everyone, so all non-patrons can take a listen, see what you think. If you like what you hear in this episode, we got seven more episodes on The Lord of the Rings over on our Patreon. So far, we've gotten all the way through book one out of six, and a big chunk of the way into book two. Just finished up the chapters on Moria and Lothlorien, some of my favorite stuff in the story. So if you like this episode, go ahead over to patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And our Lord of the Rings episodes are available for all patrons. So no matter what you sign up for, you can take a listen to all of those Lord of the Rings episodes. So this episode is going to cover the prologue to the Lord of the Rings, as well as the first two chapters, A Long Expected Party and The Shadow of the Past. Hope you like this, and thanks for listening. I remember very distinctly, I'll never forget my mother uh, reading aloud Lord of the Rings to me when I was a kid. And with certain fantasy series, there's just so many proper nouns and place names right up front that it becomes ludicrous. I remember there's the the, the Pradane Chronicles, a, a, a fantasy series for kids by Lord Alexander. And the later books were, were very enjoyable, but there is... In the first couple of pages, there's so many capitalized words that when my mom tried reading that to me, we just like collapsed into laughter and couldn't get through it. And when she read Lord of the Rings to me, we were laughing too, but we were laughing with the book instead of at it because just the the delight and humor of those the opening chapter is so great. And you're with the hobbits and their silly little routines and the love they're taking in the party and uh, and talking over Bilbo as he tries to give his big speech and everyone's just showing up anyway. And it's 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 uh, so much so much fun to. And listened to as a child, and I think it was so much fun to her to read back to me as an adult. And that kind of bond is what has made Lord of the Rings so popular and so enduring. And and that 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 good humor stayed with me, even as of course the story itself gets darker and grimmer as you go through it, as of course Tolkien intended. So I want to start first, not with that opening chapter, but with the prologue that Tolkien uh, includes with the series. And uh, this prologue serves several purposes. One of those is to immediately and slyly address the existence of The Hobbit, the story that Tolkien wrote first, the one aimed at a younger audience, smaller and more fairy tale like about the journey of Bilbo Baggins and a troop of dwarves to reclaim the lonely mountain from the dragon Smaug. That, of course, was adapted, so to speak, into The Hobbit movies uh, starting about 10 years ago. And obviously, Tolkien came up with so many of the elements that make up The Lord of the Rings after reading The Hobbit, including the significance of the magic ring that Bilbo finds on his journey. So in order to proceed forward confidently into that larger story, Tolkien, being Tolkien, felt the need to re-canonize The Hobbit a bit, putting out a, a different edition with more emphasis on the how the ring was found to tie into its presence as the one ring within this series, and then writing this prologue, which... Uh, frames The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings as two parts of the overall Red Book of Westmarch, kind of the in-universe canonization of the series kept by The Hobbits. And you th- I think about Lord of the Rings within the context of the 20th century novel. Obviously, it's the, one of the best-selling novels of all time, a major impact in, in mid-20th century pop culture and afterwards. And 
you know, it, I think it's it's interesting that that meta gambits like this, presenting the story you're reading as a book in universe, they 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 work as well within epic genre fiction as much as someone like say Nabokov, the more obviously uh, literary writers at the time who were playing openly with form. I think uh, fantasy and science fiction do that too. They just do it around the margins, whereas the more self-consciously modernist literary authors made that the central point. I think that has its own its own place as well. But I think there we, we don't necessarily need to keep rigid borders between the worlds of genre fiction and literary fiction because I think they cross-fertilize all the time. And uh, another uh, point to be established in this prologue to The Lord of the Rings written by Tolkien is to establish the lore of hobbits. And right up front, establishing that the reason we have to be explained about hobbits, the reason we don't aren't familiar with hobbits, is that we drove them away with our machines and our noises. We are responsible for our ignorance of the main characters of this story. And so this tale becomes an attempt to recover the world that you, the reader, have replaced. This is what the world was like before you showed up. And that world has been reshaped. But Tolkien emphasizes the hobbits are still there, still hanging out in the same places they always were, still doing the same stuff they only they always did. Really, as he kind of mentions uh, early on here, there's only a couple, namely Merry and Pippin, who got too big to hide. As in, they got too part of the, the world outside their domain to ever fully sink into the trees and vanish like the hobbits did again. And uh, Tolkien says that, you know, you, you big folk, you humans, you might think the reason hobbits can hide from you is that they're magic. But in truth, it's really just about being close to nature. They're always close to nature, close to the earth, as he says, and they are, they are lovers of good times. They are, they are simple in Tolkien's framing, but that doesn't mean they're exactly innocent or without their own complexities, as the tale will reveal. Tolkien writes that the hobbits are our relatives, that they are kin to the world of men. And so they are, in a sense, our bridge to the true foreign country, which is the world of the elves, the world of magic and immortality and ultimately gods. But the precise nature of the relationship between men and hobbits is lost to time. We can't, Tolkien says we can't really definitively trace our ancestry. And I think he leaves that ambiguous to set up that the only way to perceive that common ancestry is through story, is through myth and fable and tales like the Lord of the Rings. This is this is the story by which we can bring man and hobbits together as we once were. We split away in history, and the hobbits began relating to different peoples as they journeyed. They kind of show up in the margins of other people's stories. Uh, you, you have uh, some hobbits that are, are favorable to dwarves. That's kind of the majority of the, of the hobbit species are the ones who hang out with dwarves because they're of a, of a similar size and, and dwarves uh, are often feel like out, outcasts in both the world of men and elves, which hobbits do. So they kind of help each other out there. You know, hobbits were more into kind of trading and fighting by necessity in these, these early wandering days. So they got along. And even in the present day of the story, dwarves often pass through the Shire on their, on their way to, uh, to, to some mountains further West and hobbits generally get along with dwarves still. There were a handful of, 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 Weird ones among the hobbits, a, a handful of, of lone wolves and ambitious types who like to hang out with the elves, you know, the poets and the, and the prophets and such. And there, that, that kind of strain among the hobbits you can still see in the Shire. Tolkien writes that's where you get a family like the Tooks. And of course, the, 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 the Tooks are uh, in, in very strong in the ancestry of both Bilbo and Frodo. So that's where the kind of adventurous strain comes from. It's implied. And there are there were there is a branch of the hobbits that were more favorable to hang out with mankind. And this is, I think, obviously Tolkien clearly setting up Smeagol slash Gollum ahead of time because that ends up being his origin story is he's among these strain of hobbits that stayed more towards the world of men. And that makes sense thematically because, of course, men are very susceptible to the lure of the ring and so was Gollum. So the hobbits, as we know them, are in England, basically. Like that's the Shire Tolkien. You know, even, even the Shire didn't resemble England 
of the glorious past, which it does. Tolkien sets that up by saying, oh, the hobbits still probably inhabit, you know, somewhere in the northwest, east of the sea. So England. That's where they went to flee both the world of men and Tolkien says the oncoming shadow. And these two things are kind of connected for the for the for the world of the hobbits. Yet at the same time, the, those bonds with the, the men in their area persist. Again, they are our closest kin. They're connected to the Dunedain, the northern men, in their language. And if, if uh, mentioning the hobbits who hung out with men in other areas of the world was setting up Smeagol and Gollum, this mention of the Dunedain, the northern men who got along with the hobbits, this sets up Aragorn and his rangers in the present day of the story and the bonds they can forge with the Shire folk. So the hobbits who settled in the Shire began their own reckoning of time. Shire reckoning. The beginning of their history. Year one. And the establishment of the careful borders of perception in which they live. We're starting time over. This is this is our little world. And over time, as Tolkien says, they came to believe that basically everywhere in the world works this way. That there's, there's no real need for government. We're just going to carry on our trades, pass them down to the generations. There's plenty for all. We're just going to eat and drink and hang out. And they fell so in love with their new land that they basically passed out of the reckoning of other histories. Uh, as Gandalf says, I'm really the only one who goes in for Hobbit lore outside the Shire. Most people don't even know you're here, and if they do, they don't really care. They have their own stories, their own mythologies to maintain. As, uh, as Tolkien writes, there's this haunting line he describes it as, they were in fact sheltered, but they had ceased to remember it. So they, they, their, their innocence became kind of all-consuming. And this way that Aragorn says in the main series is basically inevitable. He says that we're trying to keep them from having to deal with the hardships of the world outside the Shire. And so naturally they forget about those hardships and don't, aren't like grateful to us or give us credit. But that's what we're trying to create here is, is this, this, this tiny little world where you can just have a happy life and not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. And yet there are always little, little hints of the world outside, little hints that not everything is easy as they would like it to be. There, you have, uh, as I said, the Shires in the northwest part of Middle-earth, so most of the lands outside are to the east and the south, but there's a little bit west of them where you can find the Grey Havens, which is the port by which the elves take leave of Middle-earth and go on, pass into the west. And so for the hobbits, the sea becomes this token of death, and they turn their faces from it, and the elf towers there becomes very fearful. So to the east, you have the advancing world of men. That's what's waiting in the east of the Shire is us, basically, the modern world in which we are no longer as connected to the land and to other species, etc. And then if you go west of the Shire, you have death. You have the, the domain of the afterlife and the domain of the elves and the gods. So the Shire is like caught between these two worlds which don't let you just settle and be and enjoy life and enjoy the land. Neither of those worlds are going to allow it, and the Shire is this last gasp. As a result, in the Shire, war is barely even a legend, and weapons are only family curios to be passed on. You get the sense that's how Tolkien really thinks it should be. In an ideal world, a weapon is just something strange you hang on a wall. But there is, I think, there is, I think a, a clear ambivalence here about the historical and cultural processes of the Shire. On the one hand, it is the essence of sustainable and satisfying living. On the other, the very ease of it has allowed the hobbits to bury their heads regarding what's happening outside their borders, and our central quartet of hobbits will not be able to stay innocent for much longer. Tolkien alludes to this process by noting that hobbits like stories that are fair and square, all laid out, no contradictions. If only they got to live a life like that, they're not going to get to. As Tolkien says in the foreword to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, the scouring of the Shire is an essential plot element built into the start. The idea that the uh, hobbits would return home to find the Shire industrialized and kind of corrupted and have to kick out all the bad guys there, that was built into it from the start. It was modified to focus on the villainous character of Saruman, who would be at the center of it. But from the beginning, you can sense the trepidation built into his descriptions of the Shire. This beauty is so fragile, it can be taken away. 
In that regard, the Hobbit world is like the world of elves or the world of men after all. It's mortal. The only immortality is waiting over the horizon, waiting in the west. Yet the hobbits themselves remain hard to kill, as Tolkien says. They endure, and so does this story. They love good things so much because when put to it, they can do without them. And I think you can see clearly there with Tolkien that he is a, a veteran of the rationing of the world wars, of the sense of England losing its sense of peace and plenty, and so having to really enjoy it whenever they got a taste of it again. There's the bit of the prologue, the section of the prologue entitled Concerning Pipeweed, which is the sort of thing that is immortal for reasons Tolkien did not intend. This is, besides a stoner joke, this is again set up for the scouring of the Shire, because the pipeweed is what reveals the economic link between Saruman and the Shire later on. There's a, when they find uh, pipeweed in Isengard in Saruman's fortress, they start thinking, well, that's peculiar, and that sets up, uh, Saruman's got connections there he can capitalize upon. Then there's another section to the prologue, which basically is a quick summary of The Hobbit, the reintroduction of the ring emphasizes the lie Bilbo told to his door friends about how he found the ring and how Gandalf found that quite peculiar. Once again, histories are in conflict. The, Tolkien emphasizes that Bilbo may have been kind of cheating with his final riddle to Gollum about what has it got in its pockets, and that he only really made up for that with his pity for Gollum, his refusal to kill Gollum, which is going to become very, very central to the plot and themes of The Lord of the Rings. And so from there, we launch into what Tolkien calls this history, the story of the Lord of the Rings. And as I said earlier, we start on a very comic note, very, very warm, very inviting. We start with a birthday party, linking Bilbo Baggins' old crazy uncle Bilbo to his young nephew and ward and heir Frodo. It's a ritualistic passing of the torch between our protagonists. Bilbo is turning 111, which basically officially makes him a very old man. And Frodo is turning 33, which in Hobbit Reckoning means he is coming of age. So we're going full circle around the ring, so to speak. We get more of a sense of Bilbo's character, how he has lived since the years of the Hobbit, and the reputation he has developed. Bilbo has strained the borders of what is permitted in the Shire in terms of your behavior. As the prologue said, you can only get away with being eccentric around here if you're rich. Thankfully, Bilbo is rich, and more to the point, he is generous with his riches. This party is his gigantic farewell and tribute to the Shire, giving his people the time of their lives before he leaves. Everyone's invited, he's handing out these amazing presents, there's fireworks, there's all the food you could possibly want, he's greeting everyone at the door. Yet there is also a faint note of condescension in the air. Bilbo really can't help feeling better than the other hobbits at some level, and this is a fairly direct result of not only the ring's influence, but the wider journey he took out there in the world beyond his home. He became something else. He has not aged, and the other hobbits are picking up on it. He'll have to pay for that, they say, which sets up the entire moral infrastructure of the story. Bilbo's generosity towards Frodo is a profound gesture of mercy. After Frodo's parents die, Bilbo takes him in because they share the same birthday. At some level, Bilbo feels like he is Frodo and Frodo is him. And as we're going to see over these first couple chapters in the story, that gesture of mercy really saves Bilbo. If he didn't have an heir to pass the ring on to, it might have continued to claim him forever. Only by having someone to leave everything to does Bilbo escape its influence. That's a clear parallel to, to how the story handles Gollum, the third leg of the triangle. Of course, I don't want to pretend that Bilbo is just being completely, you know, altruistic here. He also hates his cousin, the Sackville Bagginses, another source of, of com comedy here, always scraping and scheming and wanting to take over Bilbo's things, and he's denying them. He's going to hand it all over to Frodo, and that's how he's going to show them. Interestingly, in this opening chapter, though, we're not getting direct 
emotional access to Bilbo and Frodo. The story is not being told from their perspective. As in the prologue, the way story shapes perception is emphasized. We're being shown everyone gossiping about Bilbo and Frodo. Here's all the different things people think might be going on with them. The common theme is the danger and dark ideas that lurk just outside the border. You stray from the Shire, you stray from the bounds of conventional thought, like Bilbo and Frodo are increasingly showing willing to do, and you're going to come to trouble. Now, the gossiping hobbits are not exactly wrong about that, as we're going to see throughout this story. But, as we also see in the story, you have to face those things anyway. Those dangers exist, and they're not going to go away if you just ignore them. There are conflicting reports here about the deaths of Frodo's parents. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a combination of both? The conclusion that people reach is that the boats are similar to all the the treasure and the stuff Bilbo got up to abroad. It's stuff you shouldn't be messing with, stuff that makes you not quite right in the eyes of traditional hobbits. But even those cautionary tales are not enough to stop the legend of Bilbo from spreading. It's too strong, that story. It has animated the younger generation. Especially our hero Samwise Gamgee, who's emphasized right from the prologue as the legend keeper. We already know him as the one who's going to be keeping the Red Book of Westmarch, who's going to be passing this story on, and he's introduced here loving the stories and passing them on. It's a consistent role for him. Then we get the introduction of Gandalf, certainly a character people who read The Hobbit are very familiar with. Gandalf exemplifies this chapter's dance between the POV of the Shirefolk and the POV of the intruding outside world. The hobbits only know him for fireworks. As far as they're concerned, that's what he does for a living, is make fireworks. His real work, of course, is apocalyptically dangerous. And that, like the hobbit, the Shire is basically where he takes his vacations. It's where he relaxes in between. And there's, again, some, some great, wonderful lines from Tolkien that start setting up uh, the themes of the story. That, that the, the fireworks and all of Gandalf's arts, quote, now belonged to a legendary past. But on the other hand, Tolkien also says that the art of Gandalf improved with age. So there's these dual movements of time where everything is always fading away and, you know, your past glories are always gone. But at the same time, as you age and as, as uh, your, your, your civilization and your ideals age, they become more rich and more nuanced and full of wisdom. So it's that give and take process is, is essential, I think, to the story's appeal. Gandalf hints at the darker world outside the Shire by reminding Bilbo to stick to his whole plan. The implication being including the ring. Gandalf might already be worried about that. Any hints at darkness, though, quickly get covered up by the astonishing beauty of the fireworks that Gandalf sets off. All the wonders of the natural world, all sorts of creatures and creations. Everyone's ooing and aahing and clapping. And that's it represents the lure of narrative, these bright, glittering things you can't help but pay attention to. And as I said earlier, the, the, the hobbits like their stories short and simple and to the point. They like things, quote, short and obvious, only that which is necessary. And that makes them stand in direct contrast to Bilbo the poet, who's thinking of the anniversary of his arrival at the Long Lake during his journey, who always talks on and on in his speeches and references things the other hobbits don't understand. The joke, what makes it funny, what I was laughing at when I was a kid, my mom was reading this to me, is that Bilbo can't communicate with these folks anymore. They're just talking past each other. Like he starts giving a speech and they start shouting, here, 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 but then they just keep shouting it because they're drunk and they don't really want to listen to his speech. There's a sad undercurrent to it because... He's throwing this whole party as a tribute to his home, the place he was born, the place he came back to. But everything that's happening is also demonstrating how out of place he feels. And so he finally announces that this is the end, that he is he is leaving them forever, that this is goodbye. And then he puts on the ring and he literally vanishes from their lives. And once you've read Lord of the Rings as a whole and come back, it's so clear how well this sets up what happens to Frodo. Even after he returns to the Shire, after his long journey, he then vanishes from people's lives. The tone is totally different by then. The tone is comedic here, very tragic, but also very cathartic at the end of the book. 
And that's that's the full journey that, that Tolkien takes. These similar fates for these two hobbits, but very, very, very different in terms of tone. Uh, Frodo is now fully introduced to us at this point in the book. After Bilbo vanishes, we finally get access to Frodo's thoughts. And he's introduced missing Bilbo, realizing all at once that the joke is over and it wasn't that great a joke. And that uh, he might never see his uncle, the person he loves most in the world, ever again. He's going to miss him terribly. Then we cut back to Bilbo, who is cutting, coming back inside his house. He takes off his party clothes and he gathers up that, that ancient uh, travel-worn cloak of his. He gathers up his book, the story he plans to finish. So again, the very meta layer to it all. And of course, he grabs the ring and is about to take it with him when Gandalf at that moment very conveniently pops in. Gandalf mentioning, oh, nobody's going to read your book, however it ends. Again, Tolkien kind of nodding to the, the writing process being a, a constant part of people's life. People are always telling their own story, even if they're not authors themselves. And that's what Bilbo is doing. As I said, Bilbo has Frodo as this kind of avatar of innocence in his mind. Someone, he says, who still loves the Shire, still in love with this place that I am somewhat alienated from. So he wants to leave Frodo behind in that innocent state, but leaving the ring behind, of course, kind of contradicts that innocent state. And Bilbo wants to take the ring with him. The ring suddenly transforms Bilbo into this jealous, paranoid miser. His personality suddenly transforms. He says precious in the same way that Gollum used to. And Gandalf threatens to uncloak in response to that. It's a very chilling moment when you suddenly realize, oh, right, Gandalf is, has more in common with a god than he does with me. Gandalf is composed really of, you know, light and cosmic energy, not, not flesh and bone. All the veils are giving way to the realities of light and darkness, the metaphysical forces that drive this universe underneath the party surface of the Shire. In the face of Gandalf's real face... Bilbo starts realizing that how high the stakes are, and he starts talking about the ring. He starts talking about, sometimes I felt it was an eye looking at me, which, of course, it is, the eye of Sauron. Even then, even as Bilbo is beginning to realize the effect the ring it has on him, even as he realizes he has to let it go, Gandalf still has to help him. Bilbo throws it on the ground as he's trying to put it on the mantelpiece. Gandalf has to pick it up and put it there. Same thing happens with Frodo and Gollum. No one is able to 100% surrender the ring on their own. In retrospect, though, this is a momentous occasion because Bilbo comes as close as anyone has. At least he lets it go out of his hand, even if Gandalf has to take it the extra step of the way. And I think it's precisely because at some level, Bilbo knows that the ring is hurting him and that it is preventing him from aging properly, that the other hobbits are right. It ain't natural what he's doing to himself, what he's doing to his body and soul. There are these two circular images that I think define this story to a large degree. And one, of course, is the ring. And the other is the road. The road is a circular journey that goes ever on and on and never stops and loops you back around to where you were, but you're a different person and then you keep going. And one of the, I think, ideas that animates the story is that the ring is the kind of circle you don't want to invest in the kind of immortality that is bad for you saps you of your individual individuality your humanity takes you away from nature gives you too much power and leads to suffering for others and that the road is the good kind of circle the good kind of eternity that lets you die and then lets your body feed the earth and be reborn in the form of another etc and i you can obviously see i think some some strong christian messages in this idea, as you see in a lot of Lord of the Rings, but also I think a lot of the things that appeal to more kind of secular hippies of the younger generation of, of the idea of the, of the ring being power and power being bad for you and getting back to the earth being good. And I think that's that's strongly emphasized from here right at the beginning. And then you go back to the comedic tone for a bit as Frodo inherits everything 
and the Sackville Bagginses are angry, and Bilbo's left this, like, a series of hilariously petty and passive-aggressive notes with gifts, like, here are these spoons for the cousin who always steals spoons from me, which is wonderful, because one of the things I love about Bilbo is how, how wonderfully petty he is. It lets the audience start chuckling again and releases some tension after the, the very intense scene between Bilbo and Gandalf. And Gandalf leaves Frodo 2 with just a warning to keep it secret and keep it safe. And that's, that's, that's where the, our first chapter of Lord of the Rings covering Bilbo's birthday party comes to an end. So I want to wrap this up by talking a little bit, as I'm going to be doing in each of these, about how the movie adaptation handled the material in question. Uh, it's not exactly a straight one-to-one adaptation in this case. Uh, one of the things I think actually works really well in the Lord of the Rings movies is that the filmmakers preserved a lot of specific lines, but moved them around in their context, had them show up in different points of the story. And a lot of times they work just as well or even better. And I think it helps streamline a lot of the information and, and emotions we're supposed to be experiencing. So Fellowship of the Ring, the first Lord of the Rings movie, sensibly starts with a prologue narrated by Galadriel, the, the, the elf queen played by Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett has a has a perfect prologue voice, very otherworldly and very very it sounds like she's always going to be telling you a story. And so she uses a line of dialogue that belongs to Treebeard in the books about how change is coming and you can sense it all over the world and once that what you know uh, uh, the past world is is going away. And that's something that Treebeard says in the books, but Galadriel says it, says it right up front to establish the themes that this is a world that has now vanished. We are watching the the end of the way things used to be, the last gasp of the magical world. Because that's, you know, the elves are just a remnant of who they used to be. And even Sauron, as terrifying as he is, is just the last of the old gods, the last of the old monsters that used to fight over the fin of the universe. He's just the one who's like clung on to survival, like a rat jumping off a ship. And he's, he's the final Dark Lord. And I think the, the movies, I think Peter Jackson, the people working with him, knew that that's kind of the emotional heart of the story, and they had they had to get that across. Galadriel then tells a large chunk of what end, ends up being Gandalf's story to Frodo in the second chapter of the book, Shadow of the Past. The story of the last alliance of elves and men, Sauron and the One Ring, how he lost it, and how it, why it was not destroyed afterwards. Galadriel's voiceover in the first movie also touches on the prologue that sums up The Hobbit. She gets into a bit of finding the ring after Gollum took it. Again, very touching on it very briefly. So as in the books, we can further uh, advance the character of Gollum as we go. In the extended edition of The Fellowship of the Ring of the movie, Bilbo takes over from here with his own voiceover, which basically relates to us concerning hobbits, that part of the prologue that explains to us about hobbit culture. And it sets up very well the pocket universe of plenty and innocence about celebrating a simple life, but also about how he feels kind of outside that now. He says there always will be a Baggins and Bag End, and there's a sad look on his face like he's realizing, but it's not going to be him. As I said in the books, we don't really spend any personal time with Frodo until after Bilbo vanishes. He's just mentioned a lot by other characters. In the movie, we get a specific scene with Frodo hanging out in the woods and then greeting Gandalf as he arrives in the Shire. And this, I think, was a really strong decision to get a, a uh, an audience, a mass movie audience, some of whom might not be familiar with the book, plenty of whom I'm sure we're not, to get into Frodo as our character and our protagonist. Show him enjoying himself in the Shire like Bilbo says he's doing, establish an emotional relationship between him and Gandalf. And it also gives Gandalf that little moment where he's, when Frodo says, I'm glad you're back, Gandalf. And Gandalf says, so am I, dear boy. And he just whispers to himself, so am I. And again, you get that aspect of Gandalf's character I love where, like, the Shires where he gets to relax and gets to forget the, the cares and burdens of, of basically running the planet on behalf of the gods. And, you know, obviously he cares about the Shire in terms of its inhabitants and he doesn't want them to be enslaved by Sauron. But I also get the sense that Gandalf, like Aragorn, thinks that, man... 
95% of this world is a crap sock world, but if I can keep this, this place okay, I'll have done my job. And that's why he keeps coming back, and that's why he loves it so much. Uh, another another change in terms of things being moved around is that Bilbo gets his conversation with Gandalf about feeling stretched thin right away, whereas in the books, that's, that is all part of the same conversation where they challenge each other, challenge each other over the ring. And um, I really like the the way they play it in the movie because Ian Holmes sells it with his performance. I'm old, Gandalf. I know I don't look it, but I can I can I can feel it. And that that is a great way of emotionally understanding what it is the ring does to you. Because I think the ring as a emblem of lust for power is certainly a very strong theme that you will come up with, especially later with a character like Boromir, but. You know, the hobbits don't really care about power, so you have to establish early on that what what it really specifically does to them is it takes them out of this cycle of life and death and growth that is their whole thing that they love so much. And Bilbo is is realizing that he's, his transformation is, is is not entirely a positive thing. And that Gandalf is able to really understand that because he's he's so much more than a mortal anyway, so he sees he sees the corruption at work with Bilbo. The Lord of the Rings is in large part about the passing of time. The process by which experience becomes history, which becomes legend, which becomes myth. Tolkien's second chapter, The Shadow of the Past, focuses on this process from the title on down. By its very nature, the texture of time is a timeless topic. The present is always trying to puzzle out the past, even as it plunges headlong into the future. Memory can often feel like a curse, especially because it can never be true to life as it was lived in the moment. The past can be a terrible burden, but it can also be a great gift, inspiring us to take risks we might not have otherwise, giving us hope that whatever the ultimate outcome of our struggles, we will be remembered by those to whom we will be in the past. As I said last week, these same ideas animate the more self-consciously modernist novels and poems written around the time Tolkien was writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, as well as the postmodern art of the 1960s and 70s appreciated by the same audience that rediscovered Tolkien on its own generational terms. The difference is that while Pound and Pynchon foregrounded their experiments in form, Tolkien used the texture of time to add flavor to his world-building. The Shadow of the Past is a marvel of compact storytelling. It's still the gold standard for fantasy exposition. This chapter has so much important information to get across, and all these decades later, I can still palpably feel how hard Tolkien is working to keep his audience's attention while he conveys that information. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if Tolkien had bungled The Shadow of the Past, Lord of the Rings would not be the cultural touchstone it is, even if the rest of the story had stayed the same. A lot more people would have stopped reading right here if this chapter didn't work. Thankfully, it did, and still does. Even before we get to Gandalf's big backstory monologue, though, Tolkien sets up the intertwining themes of time and story right from the start of the chapter. Bilbo's disappearance is already the subject of furious gossip in the Shire, and Tolkien briefly leaps into the far future, to let us know that fireside fairy tales of mad baggins, always disappearing with his bags of jewels, will enchant young hobbits down through the generations. Experience becomes history, which becomes legend, which becomes myth. Even as we come back to the present, we can already see the shadow of the past descending. In the meantime, as Tolkien puts it, the public narrative has set in. Bilbo has come to a tragic end, no doubt, and Gandalf must be responsible. 
Tolkien plays this as a joke, the product of overzealous gossips with a lot of time on their hands, as with the rumors in chapter 1. But the hobbits intend it as a cautionary tale for Frodo, and it's one he refuses to heed. Tolkien takes his time settling the mantle of protagonist on Frodo's shoulders. Instead of being recruited for adventure literally overnight, like his uncle Bilbo was, Frodo's departure is a function of mood as much as plot. Long before Gandalf returns, Frodo is restless, roving all over the Shire with his wild young friends, imagining the unknown country waiting for him outside its borders. Part of him longs to cross the river. Another part says not yet. The river stands out here as a symbol of death and rebirth, a journey down the Styx to produce your transformation in the West, which is Frodo's ultimate fate at the end of the story. Bilbo hangs over Frodo as the years pass, another incarnation of the shadow of the past. Frodo honors his uncle in absentia by celebrating their birthday party every year, refusing to believe the hardening conventional wisdom that Bilbo is dead. As I said last week, the shared birthday hints that at some metaphysical level, Bilbo is Frodo, and Frodo is Bilbo, so Frodo is mourning his other half. Something is gnawing away at him from the inside. It would be easy to say that it's the ring, and I'm sure that's partially true, but more significant is Frodo's curiosity about what lies beyond the edges of the map. What don't I know? Why do I feel incomplete? And how do I complete myself? These might resonate as universal questions for a lot of readers, but they do not resonate that way in the Shire. These are unusual problems for hobbits to have, and they provoke anxious responses in the other hobbits, even in those close to Frodo's heart, especially in those close to Frodo's heart. They're worried about him. Frodo's inner troubles quickly find an external mirror. As Frodo approaches the border of the Shire, the borders of his own mind and soul, he finds the outer world watching back. Rumors are spreading, stories far stranger and scarier than the kind they tell around the friendly fires of the Shire. These stories come from the dwarves, not the elves, Tolkien says. The elves that pass through the Shire are on their way to the Grey Havens, and then the west beyond the horizon. They have nothing to say about Middle-earth anymore. They're leaving the hobbits to their fate. The dwarves, however, can't pass into the west, unless you're named Gimli. They're stuck here with the hobbits. They're looking for somewhere to hide. And some of them are willing to tell Frodo what they're hiding from. They're hiding from the enemy in his rebuilt dark tower in the land of Mordor. This is our introduction to Sauron the Great, the titular Lord of the Rings. Tolkien retroactively cites him here as the necromancer of Mirkwood from The Hobbit to make Sauron the overriding dark lord of this entire narrative universe. There are a lot of ways to interpret Tolkien naming the story after the antagonist. For me, this is once again about the texture of time. Even more than the elves, Sauron embodies the world that is passing away in this story. It dies with him and his ring. The bittersweet heart of the Lord of the Rings is the self-sacrifice made by the old world on behalf of the new. The recognition that of all the glory and grandeur of the elves must pass away, along with Sauron's malice and terror, then so be it. Sauron is the last of the world breakers, the final fallen god. Once he's gone, the world belongs to mortal men, aka you, the reader of the story. Here at the beginning, Sauron is for the hobbits only, quote, a shadow in the background of their memories. You can see where George got the idea for the White Walkers being long gone but not entirely forgotten. This is the end game of myth, when you are so far removed from the context 
that all that's left is a shiver you can't quite explain. Life in the Shire, as it has been lived by the hobbits and guarded by the likes of Gandalf and Aragorn, has been the antithesis of life under the shadow. As such, the news of the imminent end of the world is quickly absorbed and spat out by the hobbit gossip machine, the most reliable industry in the Shire. The irony is that when Sam believes the rumors, he is called childish for indulging in such fairy tales. In truth, the hobbits refusing to believe the rumors are the ones being naive, and Sam is more in touch with the truths buried in the old stories. Tolkien is again breaking the fourth wall here, implicitly making the argument he makes explicit elsewhere. Fairy tales within their own unique logic tap into ancient realities that will inevitably rise again in different forms. Ted Sandyman, local asshole, argues away Sam's points with nonsense logic about an elm tree that's probably an ant. There's no elm trees up there, well then he can't have seen one. And overall he reassures the other hobbits that none of this matters to them. Only Sam realizes that the elves must be fleeing something even more powerful than them, and that the Shire is being steadily abandoned to whatever that power is. Sam can only access this truth through the stories he has been told and he admits that these stories are incomplete. Fragments of legends, poems, and songs he half-remembers. Bilbo was the closest the Shire had to a scholar, and Sam is just one degree removed from that. He picked up what he could. It's a self-education with blind spots like those on Frodo's map. These rumors, these stories, compel Sam for reasons he can't explain. A restlessness that parallels Frodo's. What is my place in these stories? Do they ever stop unfolding? What is false? What is real? And am I even equipped to tell the difference? Frodo's arc truly begins with Gandalf's return to the Shire. Once again, Tolkien calls attention to how the passage of time impacts the stories we tell. Gandalf begins his story that night when he arrives, but we don't get to hear it. Tolkien cuts to the next morning instead, with, quote, the new green of spring shimmering in the fields, and Gandalf thinking back to when Bilbo left Bag End on his own adventure. Maybe Gandalf's hair is whiter than it was back then, maybe his face is more lined, but as Tolkien writes, Gandalf's eyes are still as bright as they ever were, and he still finds delight in blowing smoke rings. And that's why it's, I think, really appropriate to start the story at dawn instead of at night. Even Gandalf can't prevent time from marching on, but he can fight to preserve that which makes life worth living, and so too can Frodo and the rest of his companions. They will go through the night, and then another dawn will occur. Frodo asks Gandalf what makes, quote, my ring so dangerous, already taking possession of the ring. Then Gandalf tells him what that means for him. A mortal, Frodo, who keeps a great ring, does not die, but nor do they grow. They simply continue until they fade into a shadow, ruled by Sauron the enemy, Lord of the Rings. Here, Tolkien is advancing the argument that the local gossips made about Bilbo, that his eternal youth is unnatural, that a price would have to be paid for it. Turns out they were right, even if they don't know why. The ring embodies humanity's desire to dethrone and replace the gods, achieving mastery over death, the one enemy that even the most powerful mortal cannot defeat on their own. Gandalf and Tolkien is arguing that this desire makes us vulnerable to manipulation and corruption even if we begin our climb up the ladder with the best of intentions. You can see the lessons that George R. R. Martin learned for his own symbol of fantastic power, the Iron Throne. Gandalf makes reference to the Eye of Sauron, which dovetails with Bilbo's description of the ring as being like an eye watching him. The ring and the eye stand in for each other throughout the story, 
circular emblems of control that draw you in and devour you. But Bilbo, as Gandalf tells Frodo, didn't make this connection. Bilbo thought he was to blame, because surely the ring was beyond reproach. Such is the ring's power. It convinces you that you're the problem, not it. Gandalf then comes to his own part in the tale. Suddenly he becomes a character in his own story. Tolkien does a terrific job conveying Gandalf's sense of growing dread, a shadow on his heart, as Gandalf puts it, once more tying in the chapter's central image of the shadow. Gandalf was especially concerned that Bilbo lied about how he got the ring, trying to make himself seem blameless. It was already changing him. Now the reader begins to understand how important it was that Bilbo did ultimately walk away from the ring in the previous chapter. Gandalf implies that this act has essentially saved Bilbo's soul, even as it gradually returns his body to its mortal, decaying state. Bilbo is free of the ring's influence, so long as he doesn't see it again. It is no longer Bilbo that worries Gandalf. The narrative mantle has passed on to Frodo. The ring is with him, here, in the Shire. And Gandalf now makes plain the stakes of the story. Sauron is coming for his ring. And in the process, he will transform the Shire into a wasteland, enslaving every hobbit he does not butcher. Gandalf calls this a grievous blow to the world. No doubt there are many in Middle-earth who would disagree, especially among other wise and powerful folks like him. The Shire is practically a self-contained community. Its inhabitants do not weigh heavily in the larger struggle to prevent Sauron from conquering all of Middle-earth. Surely the fall of Rivendell or Minas Tirith would more readily qualify as a grievous blow to the whole world, because of all who depend on them standing strong. It's not like the Shire defends other people. Why is Gandalf so invested in this little forgotten corner of the world? Because, in his words, the hobbits of the Shire are charming, absurd, and helpless. They live and die outside the Shadow's domain, outside even the conscious memory of its existence. That makes them vulnerable. That makes them frustrating sometimes. And it means they can't contribute much in conventional military and political terms. But this way of life is precisely what Gandalf and his allies are trying to preserve against the Shadow. In a way, the hobbits forgetting about Sauron and carrying on in their charming, absurd fashion without him is as much a blow against him as anything accomplished by forces of arms. Of course, Gandalf wants to keep the Shire safe also because he's just personally very fond of the hobbits. You can see that in how he rattles off their family names, the legacy they take so much pride in, even though it's meaningless outside their borders. He pokes fun by calling the hobbits stupid and ridiculous, but it's clear that Gandalf wishes he could afford to live this way. Hearth and harvest and a horizon with nothing lurking beyond it. As Gandalf says, Sauron would not gain any material advantage in devastating the Shire. He would do so simply to demonstrate that he could, that a peaceful life cannot defend itself against the forces of malice and revenge. Gandalf now offers Frodo and the reader some proof of concept. He asks Frodo to give him the ring, and Tolkien tells us that Frodo does so with a reluctance he does not understand. The ring seems heavier, and Frodo cannot tell whether he is holding back or the ring is. That confusion, the inability to tell where he stops and the ring begins, will get worse and worse over the course of the story. It's the fading Gandalf was talking about. Frodo can't help but cry out when Gandalf tosses the ring into the fire as if part of him is being tossed into the fire as well. 
words emerge on the ring in a language that neither Frodo nor the audience can read. Tolkien prints the letters into the page for us, but we can't read them. Yet the fiery letters still captivate, glowing out of some strange depth. You can feel the power in these words even before Gandalf translates them. That's why he translates them, because words have power, and uttering the language of Mordor in the Shire would add to the enemy's power. So even as we read the poem of the ring, the verses about the three and the seven and the nine that establish the backstory and narrative thrust of the series, Tolkien is reminding us that there is no such thing as a neutral aesthetic. We need Gandalf to translate for us, and then we need him to interpret his translation by telling us this is the one ring that Sauron wanted, he must never get it back. Right after Gandalf lays down that gauntlet, he acknowledges that the story of how Frodo got the ring is too long to tell in full. Why is that? Well, because as the Silmarillion indicates, Gandalf would have to literally start his story with the beginning of time and space. That's the nature of story in Tolkien's mind. Like the road, it's all one big story, looping round and round again. We bite off chunks of it as it suits us. Gandalf tells Frodo that the conflict of good and evil works the same way. Like the Jungian shadow, the shadow of Sauron and his ring cannot entirely be banished, only repressed until it rushes back to the surface to threaten the peace represented by life in the Shire. Last time the shadow arose, it was confronted by the last alliance of elves and men, the coalition that threw down Sauron after he forged the ring. Again, Tolkien calls attention to the mechanics of storytelling. Gandalf says it is good to recall the last alliance, because it also seemed back then like the world was ending and there was no hope. Yet there were also deeds of great courage, that down the chain links of history has allowed for the peaceful existence of the Shire. By recalling those deeds, we can inspire ourselves to repeat them, even though material conditions have not changed. Such is the power of myth. Time takes everything away, but the present can still call upon the past to help shape the future. Stories, not great rings, are how we defeat death. The last alliance represented the mortal and immortal worlds coming together to resist the shadow's influence. As the name Last Alliance indicates, it was unfortunately the last time that happened. The leaders of the alliance, Gilgalad among the elves and Elendil among men, died in battle against Sauron, and the ring passed to Elendil's son Isildur. He did what humans more often do with power. We tell ourselves that we're the good guys. Didn't we just defeat the bad guys? They were corrupted by power, but we won't be. That's what makes us good. Isildur kept the ring, and so doomed his people, his allies, and ultimately himself. He was wrong to think he could control the ring. It consumed him whole and then abandoned him to die. Isildur's fate, of course, sets up Aragorn's arc, in which he proves stronger and wiser than his ancestor. It also sets up Boromir's fall. But this is also a statement about humanity as a whole, the ways in which our arrogance and greed undercut our best efforts. Tolkien was quite clear that Lord of the Rings was not intended as a direct allegory for the world wars. Nevertheless, it's easy to apply this dynamic to the victorious nations of World War I, so focused on trumpeting their own triumphant power that they failed to prevent the rise of a far worse enemy. From there, as Gandalf says, the ring passes out of the histories of elves and men, and into the histories of hobbits. Our new protagonist is Smeagol, a clever young fellow who was interested in roots and beginnings. So naturally, he unearthed the origin story of power itself, the shadow of the past. Although it wasn't actually him who found the ring, 
It was his cousin Deagle. Smeagol promptly murders Deagle for the ring. The ring is such a potent mythological symbol at this point. It's, it's like the golden apple of discord or the murderous motivation of Cain against Abel. It's the antithesis of harmony, and it betrays everyone who uses it. It got Deagle killed, and it transformed Smeagol into Gollum, leading him to its ideal hiding place under the Misty Mountains where it waited for its dark master to return. Here, Tolkien isn't just telling us about the power of narrative, he's showing it in action. If he had told us right away that Smeagol was Gollum, it would have changed the story in our minds. But by showing us how Gollum became the way he is, by showing him first as a hobbit, like Bilbo and Frodo, Tolkien forces us to consider the limits of our perspective, and recognize that the ring is really the common denominator here. Frodo resists this lesson. He is shocked and horrified to learn that Gollum is kin to the charming, absurd, helpless hobbits of the Shire. For Frodo, Gollum is a figure of pure evil. He can't possibly have anything in common with him. Like Isildur, Frodo cannot see his reflection in the face of the enemy. I love how Tolkien writes Gandalf's patient but firm instruction of Frodo on this point. Gandalf insists that Gollum's story is a sad one, and he implies that Bilbo easily could have suffered the same fate. Frodo's binary morality is simplistic. It does not offer him insight into why others do what they do. It only serves to make him feel better about himself and his loved ones. Gandalf says that there was part of Gollum that missed the world outside his cave. The sun on the grass, the wind in the trees. After all, what Smeagol loved best was uncovering the roots of things. And Gandalf says it turns out there was nothing in the roots of the Misty Mountains. Just eternal darkness. It's a metaphor for the empty rewards of ultimate power. The ring didn't make Gollum happy. It took him away from the sources of happiness and abandoned him in the dark like it seduced and abandoned Isildur. As such, Gollum hates the ring as much as he loves it, like he hates and loves himself. This contradiction is familiar to virtually every adult human, but it's simply too much for Frodo to bear. As Tolkien said in the prologue, the hobbits like their stories laid out fair and square, with no contradictions. By the end of his story, Frodo will understand. He too will miss the sun on the grass and the wind in the trees. The ring takes it all away from him. And yet, the ring is not actually all-powerful, nor is its master. Gandalf says that Bilbo finding the ring next was basically the most unlikely unexpected thing that has ever happened. To him, it's evidence of a higher power at work. Bilbo was meant to have the ring, and so Frodo was meant to have it next. There is a storyteller at work here, a man in back of this place, to quote Mulholland Drive, and even the corruption of Isildur and Smeagol was part of that story, delivering the ring to Bilbo's hand and now Frodo's. Frodo, of course, is not comforted by this at all. It just makes him feel like a chess piece being moved around on a board. And anyway, how does Gandalf know all this? Frodo is not a passive audience in this chapter. He's constantly interrupting Gandalf to question his authority as a storyteller. Once more, Tolkien is showing us that history and myth, like any narrative, are patchworks of different voices and some wild stabs in the dark. Even when you get ironclad material evidence, it just takes the form of words, more words, the words on the ring. There's always a storyteller shaping the information. Gandalf knows Gollum's story because he tracked Gollum down and sifted the truth from between Gollum's lies. 
Gollum was haunted by his murder of Deagle and so reshaped the story to fit his needs, as Bilbo lied about how he acquired the ring. Again, Gandalf is a translator, like the hobbits at the pub with their gossip. Finally, with Aragorn's help setting up his presence for later, Gandalf uncovered the truth. Gollum was so furious at Bilbo's betrayal and so desperate to get the ring back that he descended into Mordor, a black hole darker even than his cave. And there, Gandalf says, Gollum revealed to Sauron two crucial words, Shire and Baggins. The weight of backstory comes crashing into the present. The shadow of the past is now on Frodo's doorstep. He is understandably terrified. Once again, the easy lessons he has been taught about good and evil come spilling out in response. Clearly, Gollum is evil. He has put the Shire in danger from Sauron's invasion, which Gandalf himself said would be a grievous blow to the world. So why has Gandalf let Gollum live? Why didn't Bilbo kill Gollum when he had the chance? Gandalf replies that Frodo has not seen Gollum, and both Bilbo and Gandalf have. It is easy to condemn him from afar, just looking down the long list of his sins. But when Bilbo stared Gollum in the face, he saw the hobbit in there. He saw Smeagol. Bilbo the Invisible Man recognized himself as if in a mirror. Bilbo could have killed Gollum right then and changed the course of history, but pity and mercy stayed his hand, as it has stayed Gandalf's, even though, as Gandalf says, Gollum is really, really annoying. Does Gollum deserve death? Let's say that he does. Are there not many who die that deserve life? Can you give it to them? No. No, you can't. So you should not be so eager, Frodo, to deal out death and judgment, to take on the powers of the gods. When our hearts cry out instead for mercy, we should listen. The Christian influence, obviously, is clear here. For Tolkien, these are profound moral gestures that define the shape of one's soul. Frodo's arc is, in large part, about comprehending these decisions, these complexities, as he comes to better understand both Gollum and the Ring. Right here, right now, Frodo is still only beginning to understand the nature of power. He wonders why Gandalf did not simply force him to hand over the Ring or destroy it. Gandalf points out that this whole backstory has been about the individual will becoming enslaved and how horrible that is. Why on earth would Gandalf then turn around and do that to Frodo? Moreover, it's already too late. The ring has its claws in Frodo. Gandalf tells Frodo, oh, you think we should just throw the ring away, just destroy it? Go ahead. After so many pages of dialogue, Tolkien takes us back inside Frodo's thoughts, and it is skin-crawling to watch the ring eat away at him. Already, he sees it as the source of all beauty and meaning. Already, Frodo calls the ring precious, like Bilbo, Gollum, Isildur, and probably Sauron before him. Already, like Bilbo, Frodo's body resists any attempt to destroy the ring, putting it back in his pocket instead. Only now does Gandalf reveal to Frodo and the reader the enormity of the task ahead. The ring can only be destroyed by the fire that forged it, the volcano of Orodrin, aka Mount Doom, which lies within Sauron's domain of Mordor. Indeed, Frodo's struggle over the ring here is a microcosm of what happens at Mount Doom. It's an early tremor of the dynamics that will shape the climax, Frodo and Gollum struggling over the ring in the cradle of its birth. Frodo's destiny is snapping into place. He does not want to be the Chosen One, but he is. He does not know why he was chosen, and neither does Gandalf, but it does not matter. Gandalf can't take the ring. He's, he's just too powerful already. It would work great evil through him, because as Gandalf said earlier, even the best of motivations are corrupted by the ring's influence. 
Saruman doesn't get that, but Gandalf does, just as Aragorn successfully resists the ring despite his ancestor Isildur succumbing to it. The ring bearer has to be Frodo, and he immediately proves himself worthy of the task. The passage where he takes responsibility for the ring is still so moving. Frodo realizes, even before Gandalf says it, that he has to take the ring out of the Shire, because Sauron's servants will be looking for it here. It is only now, on the verge of leaving the only home he's ever known, that Frodo realizes how happy he's been here. As a bored young man, he often wished for an adventure to come to him and disrupt the comfortable routines of the Shire. A dragon, an earthquake, something, anything new. But Sauron is basically a combination dragon-slash-earthquake, and Frodo understands now that the real thing is dangerous and deadly. Same applies to adventure itself, the lifeblood of story. Frodo always wanted an adventure that ended happily, like Bilbo's. This doesn't feel like that to him. It's a flight into danger, growing up and putting childish things aside. He will do it, and the memory of the Shire will give him strength. But as he tells Gandalf, he feels terribly alone. And in his heart, he wants only to follow Bilbo and be reunited with his other half. This is the essence of humble heroism, the model of rising to a literally apocalyptic challenge. Tolkien conveys what a big deal this is in Gandalf's reaction. We've just heard this wizard summarize thousands of years of history and mythology. All the best and worst that is in us. And yet here he is, astonished, staring at Frodo like he's the most remarkable person Gandalf has ever met. Such courage, such honesty. Gandalf says that Frodo is truly Bilbo's heir, knowing he could pay no higher compliment than that. But Gandalf says Frodo is wrong in one respect. He need not go alone. The world may be dark, it may sap away your dreams, time may get us all in the end, but you're not alone in this. Frodo needs a companion, and with perfect timing, Gandalf finds one in the shrubbery outside. This is perfect setup and payoff. Throughout the chapter, Tolkien reminds us of the sound of Samwise Gamgee doing the gardening outside. It stands in clear contrast to the epic drama of Gandalf's monologues. He's talking about dark lords, elves, and men, and there's Sam just doing his work outside. Then the noise stops, and Gandalf picks up on that. For a tense second, we think it's one of Sauron's spies that Gandalf just mentioned. Oh no, they're going to get attacked. Then we get the comic catharsis of the reveal. It's only Sam. Sam is the reader surrogate here, as he often is. He was listening in on the conversation, just as we are. He didn't understand all the world-building details, as the first-time reader might not. But Sam tracked the emotions of it, both the wonder and the terror. The wonder, for Sam, is the world of the elves, the world of song and story. The terror is the prospect that Frodo is about to pass into that world and leave the world of the Shire behind, and Sam with it. That is the universal bittersweetness of growing up. You can only find a new world by leaving the old one behind. And so Gandalf recruits Sam to be Frodo's companion. The chapter ends with Sam's reaction, which is just perfect. He shouts with joy and then bursts into tears. Laughter and tears combined as one. That's what the Lord of the Rings is all about. Saving the Shire only to find it wasn't saved for you. Frodo realizes now that leaving the Shire means more than leaving a place. It means leaving the people. Sam will come with him on this journey, but not on the last one, when Frodo escapes the shadow of the past at last. So with each of these episodes, I'm going to be talking some about the choices made in the movie adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's very successful and beloved trilogy that started coming out around 20 years ago. 
And all praise to Peter Jackson and his collaborators for understanding that for a movie adaptation of this section to work properly, they needed to infuse urgency. There is no gap of years in the movie between Bilbo's departure and Frodo's, and we're shown the ringwraiths on their way, heightening the tension and the need for Frodo to leave. The exposition about the Last Alliance and Isildur's corruption was already covered in Galadriel's opening monologue, so the Gandalf-Frodo scene can focus on the elements salient for their plot momentum. The Ring's fiery letters, Sauron's return to power, and Gollum giving away Bilbo's name and location. You do lose Frodo's restlessness and melancholia. The pacing is more relentlessly action-oriented, which for some people is a drawback. But there are still the character grace notes that draw people in. Frodo's courage in the face of exile, Sam's naivete contrasted with Gandalf's world weariness. Both the book and the movie of The Fellowship of the Ring convey all the backstory the audience needs, while enhancing, rather than draining, our anticipation of what's coming for our present-day characters. Tolkien had a lifelong fascination with translation and adaptation. The movie Fellowship of the Ring carries those processes forward. The books themselves have become like the tales of the Last Alliance. They are memories of valor and the dark age that always seems to come around again. And I think Lord of the Rings, both the books and the movies, remain a great antidote to despair. So that was the prologue and the first couple chapters of The Lord of the Rings. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. Once again, if you want to check out our other Lord of the Rings episodes, there's seven more of them available for all our patrons over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Our patrons also get other benefits like early access to our regular weekly episodes, other monthly bonus content, and more. So go ahead and check that out if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And thank you so much for listening.